That 911 caller gave police a big piece to the puzzle in a home invasion shooting they were investigating. And that shooting would become part of one of the most notorious murder cases in Daytona Beach history. Part two of the Costofotopoulos Deidre Hunt saga and more are coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll provide updates on two headline stories we've covered in recent weeks. First, jurors on Friday reached a verdict in the trial of gang leader Luis Toledo who was charged in the 2013 killings of his wife and her two children in West Volusia County. I'll also update the murder case of Olympia Cerruti, an Orlando woman who was fatally stabbed last month inside a hotel room in Daytona Beach Shores. Her accused killer has been arrested. Later, in our Only in Florida segment... I'll discuss how four fire chiefs across Hernando and Pasco counties have been arrested during the past month, three on charges of embezzlement, and a fourth on charges of DUI and battery on a law enforcement officer. And finally, in our Looking Back segment, I'll take another close look at a murder case that captivated the Daytona Beach area one that involved a local pool hall owner and his mistress who tried to rub out the former's wife and make it look like a fatal burglary. The two were already jailed when detectives uncovered even more damning evidence against them. A grisly videotape of the couple murdering a 19-year-old male in the woods near a U.S. highway in the west end of the city. You'll hear a portion of the audio pulled from that videotape as well as old videos from the woman who pulled the trigger, Deidre Hunt. My special guest for that segment will be former Assistant State Attorney David Damore, former Daytona Beach News Journal reporter and editor Kathy Kelly, and former Daytona Beach Mayor Larry Kelly. I'll discuss the Toledo verdict as well as the arrest in the Shores homicide after the break. There it was. After eight hours of deliberations and a four-year wait for a trial, Luis Toledo was found guilty Friday in a St. Augustine courtroom of two counts of first-degree murder and one count each of second-degree murder and tampering of evidence. The 35-year-old Toledo, a former member of the Latin Kings street gang, killed his wife, Yesenia Suarez, and her two children, 9-year-old Thalia Otto and 8-year-old Michael Elijah Otto. Daytona Beach News Journal legal reporter Frank Fernandez, who covered the three-week trial from start to finish, wrote in his story that Suarez's family let out four years of pent-up emotion shortly after the verdict was announced Friday. They embraced in a circle in the hallway outside the courtroom and sobbed 
Toledo mostly remained stoic when the verdicts were read. The only reaction he had was a nod of the head after the first guilty verdict was announced. Toledo has been in jail since October 23, 2013, the day Suarez and her children vanished from their Deltona home. Prosecutors said the spark that led to the trio's violent death was Toledo's discovery that Suarez was having an affair with a co-worker. Suarez's daughter's blood was found in the master bedroom and a closet door, as well as on the trunk mat of her mother's Honda. Prosecutors said Toledo tried to discard that mat, but investigators found it, as well as a pair of blood-stained boots inside a trash bin behind some apartments in the Lake Mary area, not far from where Toledo had abandoned Suarez's car. The trial included testimony from one of Toledo's neighbors, who said he rode with Toledo when he disposed of the blood-stained evidence. At one point during the ride back to Deltona, Toledo turned to him and said, quote, I snapped. During an interview with detectives, Toledo admitted to killing his wife with a blow to the throat, but blamed his neighbor for killing his children. He said they were killed with an axe and that his neighbor did that to eliminate them as witnesses to Suarez's killing. Toledo also told detectives that he would never tell them where the bodies were, and he kept that promise. The bodies still have never been found. Court will readjourn Wednesday for the penalty phase. Jurors will hear witness impact testimony and determine whether to recommend the death penalty for Toledo. They must be unanimous in doing so. Otherwise, Toledo will serve life in prison. In other crime news, the Daytona Beach Shores Department of Public Safety announced on Friday that an arrest has been made in the September 22nd fatal stabbing of an Orlando woman. 34-year-old Olympia Saruti was found unresponsive in a room on the fourth floor of the Hawaiian Inn, a beachside hotel along State Road A1A. 25-year-old Deron Woodbury was actually pulled over for speeding near the hotel the morning Saruti was killed. He was given a citation and drove away. About an hour later, the same officer who pulled over Woodbury was one of the first to respond to a 911 call from the Hawaiian Inn. He tried life-saving measures on Saruti, but she died. The connection between Saruti and Woodbury wasn't made until sometime later, after video surveillance at the hotel captured Woodbury, which matched the body-worn camera footage taken of the traffic stop. That's how investigators learned Woodbury was on the premises. Authorities said a cell phone obtained during the investigation also contained text messages exchanged between Woodbury and Saruti. Officials said the victim had an outstanding warrant for a prostitution-related charge. Woodbury was arrested last month on allegations he battered an employee at a Daytona Beach area gentleman's club. He was a customer at the club and offered to give the woman a ride home, and she accepted. According to an arrest report, instead of taking her directly to her place, he took her to his place. After she refused to have sex with him, he beat her. Woodbury is still awaiting trial on that battery charge. Now, he is also awaiting trial on a second-degree murder charge. Coming up, a story about four fire chiefs who recently ran afoul of the law. Three former chiefs of the Hernando Beach Volunteer Fire Department were arrested last month on allegations they defrauded taxpayers. The agency had handled medical and fire calls across Hernando Beach and Arapica, two communities nestled against the Gulf of Mexico in west-central Florida. The embattled firemen are now awaiting trial on embezzlement charges, and the department each of them led during the past few years has been shut down. Hernando County Fire Rescue now covers that territory. Based on a story in the Tampa Bay Times, David Frieda, 
who until recently also was the fire chief in neighboring Brooksville, is accused of stealing more than $123,000. Meanwhile, Travis Morris and David Murdoch are accused of stealing more than fifty-seven dollars and $44,000, respectively. The now-defunct department's annual revenue, according to the Times, was less than $250,000. Authorities said the fraudulent activity began in June of 2014 and continued through the beginning of this year. Hernando County Sheriff's Office spokesman Michael Terry discussed with me the origins of the investigation. Basically, it was developed off of uh, a tip or information that was received by the sheriff's office from uh, an individual. We used that information to to start an investigation. That investigation started about seven months ago. Frida was fired from his Brooksville job on October 12th. Murdoch, who was captain at the same agency, remains on paid leave. Morris is employed by FEMA, but his job status is not known. Terry said the criminal case isn't closed yet. And as part of our investigation, we're, it is still ongoing, so uh, we're still looking for witnesses who might have worked uh, with the volunteer fire department uh, several years ago and uh, who have any information about what was taking place there. So don't, by no means is the investigation complete, but we got to a point where we could actually uh, uh, make an arrest for the fraud charges. In the wake of that public embarrassment, a fire chief in neighboring Pasco County was charged with DUI and battery on a law enforcement officer following an October 14th motorcycle crash. Newport Ritchie police arrested Timothy Fussell and his wife, Susanna Fussell. The latter, who was a paramedic, faces charges of obstruction and evidence tampering. According to police, Fussell crashed his motorcycle around 10.30 p.m. in a parking lot on Madison Avenue. Fussell was injured and he showed signs of impairment, but the 61-year-old still tried to leave the scene after first responders showed up. Fussell's wife came to the scene and told her husband not to speak to police. Authorities said she was so belligerent that she had to be removed by force. Things did not calm down after the ambulance ride to the hospital. As a nurse tried to draw blood from Fussell, his wife yelled at the medical staff to take off the equipment and then remove the IV herself. Police said she then grabbed vials of her husband's blood and threw them into a trash can. At one point during the melee, Fussell struck an officer in the face with the back of his hand. Both were jailed in Lando Lakes and released after posting bail. Last Monday, Fussell resigned as Port Ritchie Fire Chief, and he's pleaded not guilty to his charges. Coming up, part two of the story about Daytona's most notorious killer couple, Costa Fotopoulos and Deidre Hunt. Nine one one operators often get unusual calls, but the one made by J.R. Taylor one morning in early November of nineteen eighty nine was particularly strange. Nine one one, what is your Yes, uh, I'm trying to find out a death. Uh, how would I find that out? Trying to find out a death? Yes. Uh, you mean if someone died? Yes. Where did they die? Uh, I don't really know. I was informed that a lady got her house broke into and uh, was shot. Then her husband came in and shot the person that shot her. Sir, I don't know anything about that. Okay, who would I call to find that out? Uh, hang on a second. Okay. Yes. You have to call me back on a different number and ask for the death sergeant. Excuse me? You have to call me back on a non-emergency line and ask for the death sergeant. Death sergeant? Okay, I was just wondering because uh, I've got offered money. I got offered money to kill this lady. You got offered money to kill this lady? Yes. Turned it down, and uh, I was just wondering. Who offered you some money to kill her? The husband. The husband offered you money to kill her? Yes. Daytona Police Sergeant Bill Newmeyer eventually got on the line with the caller. Sir? Yes. What is your name? Uh, I'm Reverend Nassay, really. 
Well, we'd like to talk with you if you have some information in this. Well, I was wondering because, I mean, I got offered money and, uh, to kill this lady. Her name is Lisa. That's all I know. And he was going to give me his address and everything. Uh-huh. And he wanted me to go kill her. They was going to pay me $10,000. Who was they? The husband. Uh, well, see, I was seeing this girl named Deirdre Michelle Hunt. Uh-huh. She was having an affair with this guy. From the boardwalk, right? And he owned another, I guess, a game room. Uh-huh. And uh, I got offered ten thousand dollars to kill his wife. And I found out today that his wife got killed last night. Yes, sir. And that uh, he came in and he killed the guy. Jr. was telling the truth. He was one of the first people Costa Fotopoulos tried to hire to carry out a hit on his wife. By the time the call was made, Lisa Fotopoulos was in serious condition at a local hospital with a bullet in her head. Did he tell you how he wanted it done? He wanted me to shoot this girl and break in his house and shoot her. He did, huh? Yes. Uh, he told me, he, he told me, the girl that he seen told me that she owns, that he runs the police station, so, you know, he runs the police he told you that uh, he runs the girl that he's seen now that behind his wife's back for the last three months uh-huh. told me that he runs the police station. I've not seen him give policemen money and everything through my own Okay. And this was supposed to happen Halloween night when you were supposed to have done it? Yeah, but I never showed up. You just didn't show up. Did right. you get the money for it? No, I didn't want to do it. <laughs> I see. Eventually, after Newmeyer remained on the phone with JR for about 10 minutes, police found the scared young man at a payphone and eventually he agreed to be interviewed by detectives. JR told police he did not show up to collect the money or to carry out the hit because an acquaintance of his warned him that it was all a deadly ruse. If he burglarized Costas's home and shot Lisa, Costa was going to shoot him dead. That's what happened to JR's replacement, Brian Chase, an 18-year-old drifter who Costa's mistress, Deidre Hunt, had recruited at the last minute. All of the players I just mentioned were acquainted with one another through the Daytona Boardwalk. That is where Costa owned a pool hall called Top Shots. That is where Deidre worked as a waitress. And that is where JR and other aimless folks like him would frequently hang out and sometimes do odd jobs for Costa, who fooled everyone into thinking he was a big shot, one who works undercover for the federal government as a wet boy, better known as a hitman. After it was all over, two people wound up dead, and Costa's wife barely escaped death, and Costa and Deidre wound up being convicted a first-degree murder. Former Daytona Mayor Larry Kelly said the boardwalk was a problem area for almost the duration of his time as mayor. Much of the property there was owned by the city, and it was still a daunting challenge for city leaders to clean it up. Back at one time before where you see today as the Hilton, that was a Marriott at first. And that, a lot of it belonged to the city. And I bought a new city manager in probably in 1978, Howard Tipton. And he went down and got in a police car and said, take me to the highest crime area in the city of Daytona Beach. And they took him to the boardwalk and took him to the city's property. (laughs) The Fotopolis Hunt Saga was perfect for fledgling syndicated news magazines, such as A Current Affair and Inside Edition. Looking back, there are probably more than a few people relieved that this story happened long before Nancy Grace had a show. Otherwise, Daytona would have been in her crosshairs for months. But even in 1989, the case elicited so much voyeurism that longtime crime reporter Kathy Kelly, who was no relation to Larry, started feeling as though she was informing the masses on a deadly caper that was entirely too strange for fiction. Well, it's a fascinating case, however you look at it, that there were so many people involved, and uh, it, it was actually, you know, the most interesting story I've ever covered for the paper. People were calling me, people that knew me, and were saying, what's going to happen in tomorrow's paper? They, they were, it was like a running serial account of, of developments as more and more people were arrested. 
Like I explained last week, the original story published in the news journal by a weekend reporter was very bare bones and didn't come close to telling the whole story. Police released the basic information as they knew it at the time. Intruder comes into home, shoots wife in the head, and then the husband, who is lying next to her, grabs gun and shoots and kills the intruder. In a matter of hours, investigators started to uncover details that incriminated Costa. Before long, six or more people who had conversations with Costa about his wish to kill Lisa had come forward, including a business partner, drifters who hung out at the boardwalk, and his mistress, Deidre. Some of them even called Kelly at the newsroom. Just bizarre things. People would call me who knew them and offer offer up information that couldn't be substantiated at all. Like I say, once it got started, and some of the principals were actually calling and writing me, telling their side of the story, because the case quickly involved from just Costa to, to a number of co-defendants and uh, grew to be quite large and complex. The survivor in all of this, Lisa, through her family and friends, declined to talk to me for this podcast. Her brother, Dino Paspalakis, politely told me that he and his sisters have put the incident behind them. Dino and his mother lived with Costa and Lisa. He was awakened from a sound sleep when Lisa was shot. He called 911 moments after he heard the gunfire. At first, he thought it was someone firing a weapon toward the house from the yard or the road. After he made the call and started talking to the emergency operator, that's when he realized his sister had been shot in the head. Lisa has agreed to interviews in the past. She and her brother even collaborated on a book about her ordeal, Perfect Husband. They, of course, were going for irony with that title. During an interview a few years ago with Investigation Discovery for a show entitled Wicked Attractions, Lisa talked about her struggle to stay alive, one that she was confident she would win. I had this inner strength that um, that I didn't think I was dying. It was a bullet wound to the brain that came this far from killing me, and it was a miracle that I lived, but it was as if God held me in his arms and wouldn't let me go, and I got this inner strength, and I, I knew I was going to make it. As she fought for her life, investigators, as well as prosecutor David Damore, were questioning Deidre. The 20-year-old sat in the interview room with Daytona Police Corporal Greg Smith, Damore, and another investigator. She was smoking cigarettes and sipping a Diet Coke. Before the formal interview began, she had been talking to Damore while casually snacking on a bag of chips. In a strange move, Deidre actually asked Damore to sit in during the interview. She started describing every criminal act she committed with Costa, step by step. It was like she thought she could confess her way out of trouble. She had cut a deal with prosecutors in a non-fatal shooting case a year or so earlier while still living in New England, and perhaps she thought she could do so again. Here is Damore describing his conversation with Deidre prior to the recorded interview. She knew the game. And what I, what I said to her, I said, look, I said, I'm not going to grant you immunity. I said, you don't seem to understand. You know, you're in some trouble here. I said, do you understand what kind of trouble? It's like, you know, you're holding the bag. And she looked down at the bag of potato chips. And I'll never forget this because I thought, no, I don't mean the bag of potato chips. I mean, you're holding the bag for Costa Fotopoulos or someone else at this point. And I said, so you have a choice. You can talk to me or you can talk to Costa later. I said, up to you. And she says, well, I want to tell you what happened. I said, I'm here to listen. And she started talking. And she started talking so fast and with so much information, I could not write it down quick enough. 
Deidre was forthright about the crime she committed, but she tried hard to convince Damore and the investigators that Costa had manipulated and bullied her into everything. She plucked that string a lot harder during her sentencing hearing and appeal, but her police interview gave Damore an early glimpse into her upcoming defense, which was that she only did what she was told in order to stay alive. Here she is at the start of the interview talking about how her affair with Costa began. I met him and we just we we just started like seeing each other. We went weight running and we went a few places and he bought me some clothes and we ended up sleeping together. Not 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 a heavy relationship, it was just like a friends at first, basically, and then it was more or less like a it didn't take long before Deidre got to the good stuff. She was the one who notified the authorities of a videotape, one that contained footage of an assassination. In the video, it was Deidre who fired the gun. She freely admitted this. As she's smoking a cigarette in one hand and she's drinking her soda in the other and she's kind of leaning back, she says, no, by the way, we killed a boy out in the woods. Well, what you don't see on that tape is me in my chair, literally almost falling backwards. <laughs> and my thought in my mind was, what have I gotten myself in when this woman's insane? I said, none of this makes it, it can be true because it was so fantastical. The boy was 19-year-old Kevin Ramsey, who had worked for Costa at Top Shots. Ramsey learned that Costa was using counterfeit money and threatened to go to police unless he got a piece of the action. Costa fired him, but not long after that, Deidre contacted Ramsey to let him know that Costa wanted to make amends. Costa wanted to recruit Ramsey, who was one of many who believed at the time that Costa was some sort of spy or government hitman. Ramsey was told he would have to go through an initiation. He agreed to be tied up and have Costa and or Deidre fire rounds into the ground near his feet. Costa told Ramsey he needed to know whether he could handle being around gunfire. If he panicked, he was out. If he stood still, he was in. Ramsey, who was gravely naive, just went with it. Here is Deidre describing what happened once they got Ramsey out into the woods. He was going to tie Kevin to the tree. He gave me a 22 with a silencer on it. To, uh, I don't know why he gave it. He just said, he handed it to me. And he always said, carry this. You know, and I, I did what he said. And when we got out there, he had tied Kevin to the tree. And said, Kevin, you know, this is just a precaution so you don't move because you wouldn't want to get hit. Smith asked Deidre to describe in detail what she did in the video. Deputy told you to, uh, to shoot him. Kevin. I shot him. How many times did you shoot him? I shot him three times in the chest and once in the head. In the left hand temple, I shot him right here. That close range? Yes. Deidre didn't stop. Smith, who during the interview exchanged glances with Damore more than once, was in disbelief, as was Damore. They couldn't believe what they were hearing. He untied him and took the rope, so his body was like scrunched. He took the rope and he said, sorry man, and he said, come on. So I just followed him and we went back to the car and we left. You didn't bury Kevin? Nope. He just sits out there. How long ago has this been? About a month. <clears throat> and you can find that location? I'm sure I can. The general area. Okay. Deidre eventually brought up Lisa and how Costa wanted to kill her and get a life insurance payout. After I shot Kevin and he had the videotape, he came to me the next day and he said... He said, well, you sort of look like you enjoyed it. And I just looked at him. I was like, God, how could you even, you know, say that? But he uh, he said that day that he wanted to kill his wife. He wanted her dead. Lisa did not trust her husband anymore. 
A friend of hers had tipped her off about Costa's affair with Deidre. So Lisa confronted her husband, and he denied the affair. But by then, it was obvious that Lisa was ready for a divorce. She was going to leave him soon. So Costa felt he had little time to make his move. A separation meant he wouldn't get any money if she died. Oh, he couldn't stand her anymore because all she kept talking about is where he going, what he doing, etc., etc. She was she stuck like glue to him, and he couldn't stand it anymore. He wanted her dead. He wanted her dead then. Later during the interview, Demore had an important question for Deidre. Why do you think that he would expect you to go out and find someone to kill his wife for? Why? Because he had that videotape. Because yeah. after after that videotape. He would turn it in quick as anything if I didn't do what he said. The videotape showed you killing Kevin. Right. The odds didn't seem all that great that Costa and Deidre would find someone willing to barge into a house and kill a woman who was asleep in bed. J.R. already bailed on them. Another candidate got arrested the day he was supposed to meet with them. Another guy who was hired actually tried to kill Lisa a few times and failed. So it was up to Brian Chase, a friend of JR's, to carry out the deed. And it was Deidre who recruited him. He wanted it done that night still. What did he want to do it this time? He didn't say any names. He told me to find somebody. So the only person I could think of, because I had already approached JR, I went looking for JR. And uh, I couldn't find JR. And where I looked, because him and Brian were real tight, they were like this. I went up to Brian's and I said, where's JR? He said, oh, I haven't seen him for a while. He, he, now, Brian had told me a long time ago that he, he killed somebody before for money. Brian told me this. Do you know Brian's last name? Chase. Deidre incriminated herself numerous times during the interview. In this clip, she talked about Chase and how he was inevitably going to die. Deidre knew it all along. How was Brian supposed to get paid? The next day, I told him. Who was going to pay him? I was going to give him a locker key. That's what I told him. He was never going to get paid. The boy wasn't going to make it out alive. You knew that? How did you know that? told me he was going to kill him. He said to make it look like a robbery, and I had we had to have a victim, he said, because that would make him look like a hero or whatever. After two hours of questioning... Deidre rode with detectives to the scene where Ramsey had been shot. Her story was verified. I get a call and they say, Dave, he said, we found a body. He said, we smelled it immediately as we got out of the car. It's right off of uh, the road. And at that point, the whole case took on a different perspective because this was the first time there was any corroborative evidence to any of the stories we were hearing. Deidre was handcuffed and jailed. At the hospital, a police officer entered Lisa's hospital room. She was recovering from surgery and was certain to survive. Investigators needed her help. The police officer asked her one question. Had she asked Costa for a divorce? She said yes. This is okay. That's all I need to know. And I looked at my brother. Dino looked at me and I said, one plus one makes two. And that was the last thing I said about it at all. It's really scary to think that someone that you spent four years with could do something like that when all you've ever been was kind to him. It's just, it's, it's evil. At one point, Costa called Lisa at the hospital. He told his wife that he missed her. Her response was, quote, Yeah, you missed me five times. Then she hung up. Not long after that, Costa wound up in jail. Afterward, Damore and investigators were consumed with finding that videotape. Deidre didn't know where it was, and Costa wasn't talking. Friends of Costa had told investigators he liked to bury things in the woods and dress up like some sort of character, a soldier crossed with a ninja. Then he'd go back into the woods days or weeks later while it was pitch black to dig up what he had buried. It was usually weapons. 
at least one investigator used a metal detector to go find what Costa had buried. He was hoping to find the videotape, but it wasn't among Costa's stashes. <laughs> then Damore, accompanied by an investigator with the state attorney's office, dug under the barbecue pit at Costa's home in the hopes of finding something buried there. They did find something. It was the weapon Deidre used to kill Ramsey. The 22 caliber handgun still had the silencer on it. While inside the Photopolis' garage, long after the search warrant had been executed, Damore, who was granted access to the house by Lisa, saw a vinyl bag on a top shelf. An investigator climbed a ladder and peeked inside. There it was. The investigator turned his head to Damore and smiled. The tape was in there. They got another warrant written up. They got it signed by a judge. They took the bag to the police station, found a VCR hooked up to a TV, and popped in the tape. No one in that room was prepared for what he was about to see. It was like I got kicked in the stomach. I'd never seen anything like it. I'd never heard anything like it. And I, as I'm looking around the room, I see all these policemen. You know, they're homicide detectives, guys have been on the force for 40 years. And there wasn't a sound. It was like every single person there went dead silent. And these are guys that had actually probably seen shootings, been involved in shootings, seen death, you know, head on. But you could have heard a pin drop in there. Nobody spoke. In the tape, Deidre tells Costa not to shine the light in her eyes. Costa, who was heard but not seen in the recording, then turns the light toward Ramsey, who looks back at Costa as he was holding the flashlight in one hand and holding the camera in the other. Ramsey shows no fear. He was still under the assumption that no bullet was going to come anywhere near him. Deidre then pulls the 22 from the waistband of her blue jeans. Here is a portion of the audio from that 61 second recording. Don't shine that shit on my eyes. Don't shine it on my eyes, shine it down. What up? Give me that. That it. Come close, I can see you. Hold on. There? Okay. After Costa gives Deidre the okay, she fires a round into Ramsey's torso. He bends over, and he groans in agony. She fires two more shots. He groans some more, and then lifts his left leg. He bends over as much as he can, but the taut ropes restrict him. It's like he's trying to crouch into a fetal position. Then he lets out a scream. Deidre walks over to Ramsey, grabs a fistful of hair, and fires a fourth bullet into his left temple. Deidre doesn't appear nervous or scared. She acts nothing like a reluctant participant. As you just heard, she even bosses Costa, telling him not to shine the light in her eyes. The tape doomed her. Damore still remembers the sense of horror he felt watching that video for the first time. Literally, it was as if a horse kicked me in the stomach. I mean, I just was out of breath. I couldn't move. All I could hear was his cries, you know, the, the, the agony of, of being shot. And then, when, you know, when her hand went up to his head and she grabbed him by the hair and turned his head and put the gun to it, I was sick to my stomach. I just had never seen, you know, I'd seen once a Vietnam roll where they went up, where a soldier walked up to a fellow and blown his brains out and it was in Life magazine and you could, it caught it at the moment that literally the, the head imploded. But this was worse because this, this had, this was, this was right here. Kathy Kelly remembers getting a call from one of her sources on Thanksgiving that law enforcement had found and confiscated the tape. She came in that day and wrote a story. Sometime later, she watched the tape. 
I was just, I hate to say in awe, but I was just taken aback at how how cool and collected Deirdre was when she fired the gun. And, and the look on Ramsey's face, I think to the last minute he was expecting it wasn't going to happen or there were, you know, no bullets in the gun. But she did it with such authority and, and uh, precision and just coldly fired that weapon and, and took that young man's life. She doesn't appear to be under anyone's influence there. She She's doing what she was ordered to do, but she, she showed no shyness about the, the entire ordeal. Even after her arrest, Deidre was not done talking. She responded to Kelly's requests for an interview. Kelly's story on that interview was published on the front page on December 7, 1989. It generated a lot of buzz. She called here and talked with me on the phone. She had someone else call initially to try to give her side of the story. But then she eventually did call back and talked with me. And I made it clear I was writing a story. I was taking my notes on my computer, and I made it clear. And I'm sure that any any public defender would have told her that was absolutely the wrong thing to do. But she, she again, was pretty much acting independently as, as she was uh, inclined to do telling me her side of the story. She was terrified of Costa, and he made her shoot Ramsey. I think parts of it were true, but uh, she was just seemed anxious to get her side out there and tell her side. She communicated with me, I think, one or two phone calls, and then she wrote to me from jail several times. But uh, ever since her conviction, she has not communicated with me for, for some odd reason, because I thought she found me uh, someone who was willing to listen to what she had to say, whether it was true or not, to, to get someone in a very high-profile murder case calling you and, and talking is, is pretty unusual. So she's never talked to you since? No, she has not. Deidre agreed to cooperate and testify against Costa. She also agreed to plead guilty, even though the state told her it wouldn't guarantee that prosecutors wouldn't pursue the death penalty against her. She changed her mind a few times until finally the judge in her case wouldn't let her change it again. Deidre did not stand trial, but Circuit Judge James Foxman heard evidence during a sentencing hearing. There were no jurors. Foxman would decide on his own whether to sentence Deidre to death. He watched the tape. Damore told me that Foxman leaned back in his seat and had a look of disgust on his face. Deidre pleaded for mercy before she was sentenced. The only way to survive was to do exactly what you were told, when you were told, and how you were told to do it. I have a question over and over and over again in my mind. I could have done anything differently. But I'm ashamed to say She did not advocate for Billy or Kevin. Foxman sentenced her to die. She became the youngest person, male or female, on death row in Florida. Costa would later be tried. Damore handled the lion's share of the case during Deidre's sentencing hearing. But the lead prosecutor for Costa's trial was then-State Attorney John Tanner, who gained notoriety for praying with Ted Bundy and would gain fame later for successfully prosecuting Eileen Warnos. To obtain a guilty verdict and death penalty against Costa, Tanner committed to the argument that Costa cast a spell on Deidre, manipulating her and others to do crimes for him. Doing so meant endangering Deidre's death sentence. In that case, Damore argued that Deidre was a fully willing participant. At first, Tanner's plan worked perfectly. He got his conviction and death sentence. Costa unintentionally gave him a huge assist while he was on the stand. During cross-examination, Tanner asked Costa whether he shot Brian Chase in cold blood. 
Costa's answer was, quote, I shot him down because he came into my house and shot my wife. And if you come into my house and shoot my wife, I will shoot you too. That blend of hot temperament and defiance didn't go over well for jurors. They came back in less than four hours with guilty verdicts on all charges. Then came yet another bizarre turn. While in jail awaiting the penalty phase, Costa cut his ankles and wrists and had to be hospitalized. Nothing was found in his cell that could have caused the cuts, and he never talked about it. So it all remains a mystery. No one other than Costa knows for sure whether he was trying to commit suicide or elicit sympathy for jurors, or maybe he was trying to give himself a chance to escape while at the hospital. It didn't matter. He got 30 stitches and the death penalty. Jurors this time took barely more than an hour to recommend death. Just as Damore had feared, an appellate court subsequently voided Deidre's sentence and she was granted a new trial. She would be tried in 1998. By then, Damore was in private practice, so someone else prosecuted the case. Jurors took 10 hours to convict her. The judge in that case, Ed Sanders, decided on his own what the sentencing would be. He chose life in prison without parole. Sanders, Damore told me, had not sent anyone to death row before then, and he did not choose the Deidre Hunt retrial to sentence his first defendant to death. Deidre's removal from death row wasn't just because of the conflicting arguments by the state attorney's office. Deidre's original attorney, Peter Niles, had made a deal with a tabloid show weeks before he urged his client to plead guilty. He was paid $5,000 for Deidre's story. Newspaper articles and books listed a current affair as the program. That was a major factor in Deidre getting a new shot before a judge. It also led to Niles getting disbarred. Deidre's court file contained a copy of another nationally syndicated news magazine, Inside Edition. Here is the intro to an episode that aired in December 1990. Would you murder another human being if your own life was threatened? Deidre Hunt claims she made that decision and committed murder. And the whole grisly incident was videotaped. Now Ms. Hunt is on death row. Vanessa Moody with a very dis... That's right. Future Fox News talk show host Bill O'Reilly was host of Inside Edition at the time. During her interview, Deidre portrayed herself as a lifelong victim. First, she was abused by her mother, then manipulated and threatened by Costa. Inside Edition reporter Vanessa Moody mirrored the public's skepticism when she interviewed Deidre. You know, looking at that tape, it's hard to believe what you say. We see you shoot him first to the body, and then almost to make sure that you kill him, you walk over, you grab him by the hair, and you put the gun close to his head, and you pull the trigger. I didn't, he told me what to do. It doesn't look like a person who doesn't want to do it. There's no hesitation in your movements. There's no fear in your face. No, there was no hesitation. I was very angry that night. I was angry at myself because I couldn't do anything to stop. I had no choice. I chose to live. I didn't choose to die. I didn't do what he told me to do. He was gonna kill me. And I had to shoot Kevin or die. Inside Edition also interviewed Costa, but very little footage was used. He swore the voice on the Ramsey killing video wasn't his. I was not on the tape. That's it. The tape did not show me. The tape only showed Didra. As for Lisa, she has since remarried. She is still an active member of the Daytona business community, and the boardwalk she had fought so hard to revitalize has been significantly improved during the past 28 years. It's no longer the riffraff magnet that it once was. Here she is describing to Investigative Discovery her feelings about her ex-husband. I think he's a monster. He's an evil monster. I don't care what he thinks. I just don't care about him. It's like he doesn't exist in my life. 
Damore told me his memory is often spotty, but he still has vivid recollections about everything related to Costa and Deidre. The case has always stuck with him, large in part to Deidre's personality. He's encountered no one else like her. Here he is describing her behavior and how she acted after Ramsey's body was found. Conniving, manipulative, um, worldly, um, seductress. I still remember one thing in particular about this case because it doesn't happen often. But when Deidre had taken us to the area where we found the body and had confessed to being involved in the attempt on Lisa's life and uh, the killing of Brian Chase, knowing that he was going to be killed and how she had helped to lure him there. She was sitting uh, in one of the cubicles, cubicles in the police station in the, in the corner, handcuffed, and I walked up to her. She looked up at me and she kind of had like these moon cow eyes looking up. You know how, how, how a woman kind of somehow has a way of drawing you in? And she says, well, can, well, I, when I be, can I be going home tonight? Can I be going home now? And I said, Deidre, no, dear, you're going to be arrested. You're being charged with murder. And it was, and she didn't change that look. It was like she was seducing me with that. And I don't know how to describe it because I don't want to sound like a phony. But if you were there, you'd know it. It was just that seductive look like me being arrested? I helped you. I told you what happened. The level of Costa's evilness, coupled with his glibness, also stuck with Damore. A law enforcement official who was friends with Damore once visited Costa in prison not long after the trial. He had with him a photo of Costa and Deidre together on a ride in Orlando called the Tunnel of Love. He asked Costa to sign it and address it to Damore. The ex-prosecutor still has that signed picture in a frame in his office in Daytona Beach. He showed it to me during our interview. And unbeknownst to me, uh, he went back to Costa in the cell. He says, you got anything you want to say to Dave Demore? He said, yeah, he did a good job. He said, he almost had me believe in it. And uh, he said, would you sign something for it? And he gave him this picture, and this is what Costa wrote. With love, excellent, Deputy Dave, Costa Fotopoulos. Wow. Even after that, so I've, I've had this ever since that day. You know, I don't know. What can I say? How do you, how do you write this stuff? There is no execution date for Costa Fotopoulos, who is being housed at Florida State Prison in Rayford. Deidre Hunt, meanwhile, is being housed at the Lowell Correctional Institution in Ocala. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week when I take an in-depth look into the 1997 murder of Sheila Bellish, a 35-year-old mother of six who was killed in her Sarasota home by a hitman hired by her ex-husband. Join us then. You can find Tony on Twitter at TonyCrimeWriter or email him at Tony.Holt at News-JRNL.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal.